Hello, I'm Mary Osborne. I'm Kathy Shagrin. And I'm Stacia Matten. And we'd like to welcome you back for a second season of Prairie Tales, where each month we talk about this wonderful community we live in, Monmouth, Illinois. Mary, did you know that the city of Monmouth is the birthplace of fraternity Kappa Kappa Gamma? Well, yes, I did. Well, did you know that their mascot is an owl and the Florida is their symbol? Yes, I was aware. Did you know that the fraternity began as a desire by several local women in Monmouth to develop a women's fraternity for social development and now has 145 collegiate chapters? How do you know so much about Kappa Kappa Gamma? <laughs> well, well you know, I read it on the I read it internet. internet. Well, moving on. Each month at Prairie Tales, we bring you a little slice of history from Monmouth's past with the help of local historians. Last year, we heard from many of you who listen, and we welcome your ideas for future programs. We also would like to recognize the Buchanan Center for the Art, which sponsors our program as part of its mission to promote the art in whatever form it takes in the Monmouth area. So, are we ready to begin? Absolutely. Well, get ready because it's season two of Prairie Tales. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's podcast of Prairie Tales. Today, we're going to talk about something that we don't talk about too often on this podcast. We're actually going to talk about serial killer John Wayne Gacy. That seems like, oh, maybe that's not something I want to listen to, but actually, I think you might want to tune in today. We're going to really talk about the survivor story of uh, some of the people that encountered John Wayne Gacy and actually how his story intersected right here in our little area of the country. Um, This all started when I read an article um, in Harper's Bazaar magazine that really struck my interest. Um, there's a woman, Courtney Lund O'Neill. She's actually the daughter of one of the women responsible for ending the crime spree of John Wayne Gacy. Um, and she does a lot of work, has written some books and articles all about her story about remembering the victims. And she wrote a beautiful article sort of outlining what happened to her mom um, and how her life intersected with that of someone who ended up being a notorious serial killer. So I wanted to read a little of that article to you today. Um, The article for references called A Serial Killer, A Receipt and My Mom, Haunted by the Murder of 33 Boys by Courtney Lund O'Neill. This was from uh, Harper's Bazaar, October 31st, 2018. And yes, was not lost on me that she wrote this on Halloween. So I think they were going for that capture. My mom's role in capturing the prolific serial killer, John Wayne Gacy has haunted me since I was a child. This summer, I sat down with her after he reemerged in the news cycle to get an insight into how he affected her motherhood and ultimately my own. I was on a run when my mom called to tell me John Wayne Gacy, the prolific serial killer from Des Plaines, Illinois, who raped and murdered 33 boys was all over the news. Advanced technology was surfacing with hopes of identifying two of the final six identified victims. It's been almost 40 years since his capture and he's been dead for more than two decades, but somehow he still finds a way to haunt her and me. My mom first met Gacy on December 11th, 1978, a particularly cold evening in suburban Illinois. That night, my mom, then 17, and her friend and coworker, Rob Peace, were working a shift at Neeson Pharmacy. 
A large, strange man thudded into work, a contracting job at the pharmacy. My mom thought he seemed out of place and asked her boss, who is that? It was slow, typical of a Monday, so Rob spent time restocking the shelves and my mom worked the cash register. At some point, she developed a roll of film. She had forgotten her jacket that night, so she asked to borrow Rob's favorite blue parka. Every time the front doors opened, a frigid cold wind would swoop in, so he lent it to her. At around 8 p.m., when his shift was almost over, it, it was around 8 p.m. when his shift was almost over when Gacy asked to speak with Rob out back about a summer job that would pay him double what he made at the pharmacy. He took his jacket back, went outside, and was never seen again. In the pocket of Rob's parka, my mom had placed her film receipt. She had first crumbled it up and thrown it in the trash, but then had an odd feeling to save the receipt. It made no logical, rational sense, but she followed the cues anyway. My mom had told police the last thing she knew about Rob. He took his blue jacket and went out back to speak to Gacy about a summer job. Gacy initially denied ever speaking with the boy, making it difficult to get a search warrant. But as Gacy cleaned up his murder scene, he either didn't see the film receipt slip from Rob's pocket or he paid no attention to it. But in a superficial search of Gacy's home, the receipt would be found by lead detective Joseph Kozenzak. He'd see Kim Byers, my mom's name, on it, along with the name, telephone, and address of Neeson Pharmacy, proving Rob had been there, even when Gacy denied ever speaking to him. The receipt would be the leading piece of evidence to uncover the multitude of bodies buried under Gacy's home in his crawl space. It would also make my mom the key witness on a national serial killer trial when Rob's egg white pale body was found floating in the Des Plaines River in April, 1979. She had to testify, yes, that was her friend. And yes, Gacy was the last one seen with him. Last December, my mom and I visited Gacy's home. I wanted to be in the last place all those 33 boys once stood. I had been obsessed with the case since I was a child when my mom first told me about her friend who was murdered by a serial killer. She used this story as a forewarning. If a man invites you to see his puppy or offers you candy, you say no. If he takes you anyway, you fight, you call out, you kick him right in the privates. And if he says he will kill your parents if you scream, you scream anyway. And once I became a mother, my obsession turned into a haunting. I became consumed with the boys Gacy killed because I feared the same thing would be happening to my own boy. My body imagined the pain all those families went through. I thought if I visited the house, I'd get some closure, some kind of answers. But if anything, I got a strong desire to change the narrative of how we see killings. I wanted the world to remember the victims, not the man who killed. While there, we spoke to a mailman who drove through the neighborhood. He told us something that shocked us. People still send Gacy mail, as in they write a dead serial killer's name on a paper parcel package, pay for postage, and mail them. The mailman seemed just as petrified by this fact as us, maybe because he actually has to deliver them. And it made me wonder, how do we evict the dead who haunt us? Although I've never met Gacy, it feels like I have. He's been the face to my boogeyman and the root of every bad feeling I get from crossing paths with a man in the dark.
He's taught me bad things happen, and sometimes we don't know why or how, but we can choose how we respond. So that's just the beginning of that article. She goes on with a really detailed and and memorable interview with her mother, and I would encourage you to to look it up online if you're interested in reading more about this. Um, But you can see why I was struck with this story. I, um, as somebody that lives in suburban Illinois, um, someone that is a mother and a a daughter um, that actually grew up in the 70s and 80s, it's really resonated with me, maybe more out of fear than anything else. When I was a little girl, I was actually um, the victim of a a violent offender. And I had to go to trial and testify when I was just small in elementary school. And I think probably that is what has spawned my um, curiosity about crime and criminal acts since ever since, because I feel like, you know, you want to deal with the devil, you know, not the devil you don't. Right. So it's like, I have to, I have to look at it and read about it and understand it so I can prepare myself. So what does this have to do with Warren County? What does this have to do with our area? Well, interestingly enough, I have a special guest with me today, somebody that's a friend of mine that I heard through the grapevine also had an intersection in his life with John Wayne Gacy. And my special guest today is Don Farr. Hi, Don. Hi, Stacia. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining me. Today, you get to be the the star of the show. How's that? That's, you know, that's that's a good thing. That's right. You know, I love stories. I'm a storyteller. Um, my parents would probably call it something else when I was younger. But um, in these part, this part of the country, especially, our history stays alive by the stories we tell. I'm sure your mom and dad, my mom and dad, even going on drives today, will tell us what used to be on this corner or who used to live there or what you can't believe what this used to look like. And um, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and how long you've lived around these parts? Well, um, I was uh, I was born in August of 1961 in the what is now referred to as the old Monmouth Hospital uh, that used to stand, I believe, on East Euclid, somewhere around uh, the Monmouth College parking lot, I believe. And uh, so, you know, um, mom, my mother and father were graduates of Roseville High School in uh, 55 and 57. Other than a few short years that we lived in Des Moines while I was going to uh, Drake University out there for a while, I've been right here. Uh, I did move to Monmouth for a while uh, when I was principal at Harding Elementary uh, and then um, and, and Central uh, Junior High. And then once the uh, consolidation went through, felt the need to move back to Roseville uh, so I could be in the same same town as, as the school building with nightly activities and everything. It just... It, it just made it a lot easier. Uh, so yeah, sixty years. You're a, home, you're a hometown boy. Yeah, I, you're a hometown I boy. I am. A, I am Warren County through and through. You bet. That's awesome. I would, you know, I'm a transplant. I always say I'm new here, and then I realized the other day that I've been here for 17 years, and I don't think I can say that anymore. I think uh, I'm starting <laughs> to maybe become an official, like official. Maybe. I mean, I'm a Midwestern girl through and through, and always a small town girl, but was a transplant to Warren County um, right at the time my youngest was born. 
so Dom, when I read this article, um, and you just listened to me read it too, I really couldn't help and think about you um, and some of the similarities between you and Rob, the 15-year-old young man in the article. Um, when I read that article, I didn't realize he was only 15. I did some independent research and realized he was really quite young. And it, it's my understanding, and I've actually never fully talked to you about this, but you know, it is a small town. I have heard some rumors that perhaps you and um, John Wayne Gacy may have crossed paths at some point when you were younger. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners and me a little bit about that. Sure, sure. It was the uh, summer of 1978. John John Wayne Gacy and another gentleman, a, a, a man uh, that was only 19, maybe 20 years of age, were he was they worked for a company called Pharmaceutical Equipment out of Chicago. And the year prior in 77, Axline's Pharmacy uh, in Monmouth had undergone a renovation in in their store and had hired this company. And I had a part-time job as a a, uh, junior in in high school. I had a part-time job on the weekends that I, I worked for Jerry Schrader. And he was the owner and pharmacist at Schrader Pharmacy in Roseville. And is good still friends. There, is that pharmacy still there? No, it is not. Okay. Jerry's Jerry since retired, and and uh, it uh, actually it's an off branch of X Line Pharmacy uh, okay. now. But uh, Jerry and and Bill Senior X Line were good friends and helped each other out, and and uh, Jerry had gone up to see what what this company had done in in the Mammoth store, and um, the Roseville Pharmacy evidently was needing some sprucing up. So uh, the following year, he had hired uh, the company, and then the company sent the subcontractors uh, down to Roseville uh, to to do the work. So yeah, two years in a row, uh, Gacy, and I believe it was this the same gentleman, like I said, his name was Tom, and he was either 19 or 20. He uh, They both stayed at Mellings each year. It, it ended up being about a two-day stint, about 20 hours total. Uh, that I, I worked with uh, Gacy and and this Tom, and it was um, it, it was a very interesting experience. Not not a lot of uh, stuff really happened, although there was there was a couple things that I'll, I'll get to later. Uh, but I pulled in one day and we started tearing out shelves and and uh, demolishing part of the, the store to, to rebuild it. And, and, uh, my, my job was just to assist in any way that I could. So if we're looking at a timeline, I think you said, so Gacy was arrested and his killing spree ended in December of 1978. That's when Rob was the final victim. Yes. This was the timeline puts you like, right, right, right there. That. He had committed, he had committed the vast majority of the murders, before he had gotten to Roseville, oh. and uh, and like I said, I was I was 16 uh, when we worked together. Uh, just getting ready to turn 17 in August, uh, so um, I was yeah I was kind of right right in his target area. But he he came off to me as uh, at, at that point in time, Saturday Night Live was was kind of just getting started, believe it or not, and uh, he he really appeared as, as this character. He was, he was short, squatty. Um, he took a towel and he'd, he'd ring the towel up and stick it around his neck. 
and stuff it into his shirt. And he always kept saying, I'm a fat man with um, getting ready to have a heart attack and um, just sweat like crazy. He had the thick uh, Chicagoan accent uh, that I, I, I call it Chicago accent. Uh, he, again, he, he sounded like someone on Saturday Night Live trying to, you know, um, yeah. run a diner or something. And, um, he swore like a sailor and he didn't really? care. Oh my gosh. He, he shocked many, many an elderly lady in the, in the pharmacy, those, those two days. Because um, I would say back then, I mean, I, I don't remember when I was a kid, I'm a, I'm a little bit younger than you, but not too much. And I don't remember as a kid really hearing adults cuss like that around. No, no. And, and like, certainly, it just was not happening. We didn't hear it on TV. Like it just wasn't a thing. No, no, certainly not uh, in a small town, you know, in a place of business, uh, you just didn't do that. And uh, like I said, he, he shocked a few, few ladies because he, he would let it fly, especially if, if something took place that he didn't like, um, he was, he was just, he was just kind of rough and gruff and, and, uh, but yet at the same time, like I said, I, there, there was never any sense of this guy is just bizarre. He just, he was just this, uh, for a 16 year old kid that never really had been out of Roseville. Uh, he, he was this character. He was the Chicago character that, uh, blew yeah. in and he didn't care who was around or, or what he said. So you look, you met him when you were, you had very little life experience. I have mm-hmm. teenagers at home. Uh, they, they don't know everything. I mean, it would tell you they did, but you know what I'm saying? Um, mm-hmm. But looking now as a grown man, it's had a lifetime of experience. Do you, did you see anything that you would call today any sort of a red flag? There were, there were a couple instances that took place. Um, he was directing this Tom uh, to put together a series of uh, shelving units. And the shelving units were, were in four-foot increments. And he, he made it quite clear to Tom that he, uh, he needed to plumb and level to, so to make sure that it's you know straight up and down and it's nice and level each section as he attached them. And this is, this is just going to sound so bizarre, but he, he turned to Tom before he let him loose to say, to start putting this section of shelving together. He said, now again, plumb and level each section, because if you bury your mistakes, Uh it's going to come back to haunt you. And I just thought, well, that's okay. He, he wants to make sure each section is, is plumb and level and, and it's not going to waver as it, as, or curl or whatever, as, as uh, he puts more and more sections attached to it and um, jump forward to December when the story broke and uh, I come walking into the pharmacy. And that was one of the first things that just, I mean, it was just like, boom, I I essentially forgotten it until all of this came out and it's like, wow. Um, so for our that, listeners that might not know the story, I think it's a, probably, we should say um, how John Wayne Gacy was ultimately sort of busted is when they did that search of his house, there were all, these bodies were all buried underneath mm-hmm. his house. And um, so thus the, the comment that he said about burying mistakes and coming back to haunt you. Cause in fact, he was absolutely right. 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 Wow. Right. 
the the other instance, I you know, I I knew that I I was just there to help uh, and and do whatever I I could do to assist uh, he and and uh, Tom. Um, one one time we had to move a glass cabinet uh, sh showcase type thing display case outside to get it out of the way, and you know it's, it's a typical uh, glass cabinet that would be in any store uh, that would show perfumes and, and, you know, jewelry and that type of thing. And so in order to get it out, we had to slide the, the back doors together uh, that were on a track and uh, to get a, a decent place to hold, uh, did get a grip on the, on the case in order to carry it out. So we, we each got our, on one side or each of us got on a side and we lifted it up and we moved it towards the door. Well, the door had a rather large threshold. So he said, you know, let's, let's pick it up and let's move it through the door that we had propped the door open. He was on a count of three, one, two, three. I thought he meant to stand all the way up with it. Um, he meant just to lift it up so the legs would clear the threshold, uh, which that caused a tilt in this case. And the sliding doors in the back came down and smashed his fingers. So he promptly dropped his end of the, uh, the display case and uh, slammed outside, marched up and down the sidewalk again, just the profanity was just flowing out of his mouth. And um, and a few minutes later, he came back in, he looked at me, he goes, all right, let's try it again. So I took my position, he took his, we lifted up one, two, three. This time I just barely lifted it up. So we got it out to the, out to the sidewalk. He was okay. This is good. Let's, let's set it down right here. I set my end down. He took his and raised it. So the glass doors now came down on my fingers. No. And um, I, I looked at him and I said, well, we're even. Okay. And that, oh that was about it. And, oh my and, gosh. I, I knew, I knew he had done it on purpose. Uh, just, you know, in revenge, which I thought was kind of childish, but yeah, anyway, who's the child but here? Yeah, <laughs> you were literally uh, a child. <laughs> yeah, but that those were uh, those were the two big instances that uh, that took place. I mean, I've done a lot of studies about memory and what makes people remember, like to be a witness, right? You know, when people ask mm -hmm. you years later, what do you remember about things? And I think it's pretty much common knowledge that. If somebody asks you even what you were doing last Tuesday at three o'clock, you'd be hard pressed to really figure it out. Unless last Tuesday at three o'clock, something noteworthy happened. It was your grandson's birthday. Um, it was the day you got food poisoning. So like once something interesting or noteworthy happens, it tends to sort of lock it into your brain. Right. And so it's so fascinating to me that back in 1978, this happened to you. And when I hear you tell the story, I I can tell that you can still see it, that you can envision it, that you can hear it. I can tell by the way you tell that story. And so sure, it's noteworthy because four months later, you realized who he was. But I'm here to say it must have been noteworthy at the time because you locked it in. Because even four months on going, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. Let me think your memory would not be that clear. So it's interesting that whether it was his bigger than life personality, small town boy, maybe all the cussing, but something locked that into your memory because your storytelling is so clear. 
I can't tell, you know, I can't remember things like that unless something really major happens, you know? Right. Right. And it was just, this was a man that was so different than anybody I had ever met before. I mean, I, I had worked with farmers and baled hay and walked beans and, you know, we, I did all sorts of things and every once in a while there'd be a, a mess up and, and the farmer might get mad, but you, you come back and, and say, Hey, didn't mean to. And he goes, yeah, I know you didn't, you're, you're learning. And, you know, I, I appreciated that kind of, of attitude and that kind of respect, so to speak. And uh, this guy, he just, he just kind of went by his, his own, his own way of doing things. And, and uh, what, what absolutely shocked me was, when, when the story broke, I remember uh, walking into the pharmacy that day and uh, Jerry Schrader, uh, the pharmacist said, you need to come back here and, and have a seat. You're, you're, uh, you're not going to believe this. And so I did. And, and he told me what had happened. And, and the very first thing I thought of was the fact that this Tom wasn't that much older than, than me. And I, I just became really concerned if he was one of the victims. Um, so Jerry was able, he had all the contact information from the company and everything. And he, he uh, called and we found out that, um, uh, no, Tom was still there. He was still working for the company. He was not one of the victims. In fact, he was just as shocked as anybody else that knew the, the business side of Gacy, if you will, uh, because this this kid stayed in the same hotel room with him, and and they I can't remember the sequence, but they had either been in the New York area, come to Chicago, and then down to Roseville uh, to do ours, and then they were on their way to uh, the Denver area or vice versa, and you know just all over the country. He had, he had, yeah. he had shared a hotel room and he had no inkling that this was, this was the person that he had been sharing a hotel room with. I can't uh, imagine. Which, he, I can't imagine that didn't mess with his mind. I, I, I've got to think so. Yeah. And, and I, you know what, when, when all of this kind of resurfaced here, just within the last couple months, I don't know why, um, but I, I never knew how old he was when I met him, when, when our interaction took place in 78. And I was absolutely shocked to find out he was 34 years old because he did not, I mean, he looked like he um, was much older, much, yeah, much older. Yeah, you know, when I visualize John Wayne Gacy and every picture we've seen of him, right? I picture Archie Bunker. Like I picture, you know, like, 50s you know 60s and I know we looked I think we all looked older back then like I look at pictures like my mom's high school picture she looks like 30 I don't know why but you know <laughs> like but uh I to think he was 34 I mean I never visualized him because I think 34 is so young mm -hmm. I don't I don't visualize that so I'm glad to hear that you were right there and you didn't feel that uh, either. yeah I just thought he was this grouchy gruff old man that I, I related much better to Tom and Tom and I, you know, did certain projects together uh, during those 20 hours and to uh, uh, and kind of let Gacy do his own thing as he was, he kind of focused on the finishing work of things. And, and we did either the demolition part of it and the initial setup of stuff. 
So it, it, it just absolutely blew me away that he was essentially a young man. I mean, mid thirties is a, that's a, a young man. And I imagine uh, he, it was hard. I imagine he had a lot of life on his face and mind because it, I don't think living a double life is necessary. It feels like it would be incredibly stressful. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? I don't think he was easy breezy. Right. Like, and that no, kind of no, I, I think it probably took yeah. a tremendous toll because yeah. it, it was, I cannot in, in, in my trying to deal with it over the years and, and thinking back, I just, I cannot put the two individuals together. Mm-hmm. Gacy, the serial killer and Gacy, the man that I encountered because there was, yeah. there was nothing, you know, nothing. I, I wasn't afraid of the man, you know, even after he retaliated and smashed my fingers, I, I wasn't afraid of the guy. And, and obviously Tom had, had no fear or, or no inkling that this was uh, the type of person that he was. Um, he just, he, he was who he was. And, and that's how I always looked at him. And, and this other person, the, the paintings and, and, and the stories of him being a, a person that you could hire as a clown to come to your kids' uh, birthday parties and, and this, you know, low-level ma- magician, uh, which is how he got a lot of his, uh, his victims um, restrained uh, by using some quote-unquote magic uh, handcuffs and things like that. I just, I can't, I can't relate to that guy. He, he just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it just speaks to the, his depravity. I mean, um, I, I would never on this podcast go over the details of his crimes and what they've found, but I mean, clearly he was completely, um, you know, uh, evil, you know, and capable oh, yes. of having completely two different personalities. Like, and, uh, unfortunately, like, it's, it's even more terrifying to me that you were none the wiser. I mean, that's terrifying, right? You, you'd like to, I almost would be relieved if you would have been like, oh no, he was real. Like the whole time I was like, that guy's not right. But the fact that you're like, you know, he was a character, but I would have never imagined it makes it even more terrifying. Yeah. So let me ask you this, were you ever like, did anyone ever call you or contact you? Did the police ever talk to you or? No, no, um, not not the police. Um, at the time, uh, Channel Eight came down, oh. and yeah, the so uh, interviewed uh, Jerry and I. We got to be on the six o'clock news, uh, so that was that was kind of cool. Uh, some some people from the little businesses uptown, uh, they you know they say, hey, we we want your autograph and all that. So there was just <laughs> some you know lightheartedness and and. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, I don't know if we want to be uh, known for, for this. Um, right. It's more infamous than, than famous. Um, but yeah, there was, there was just a little bit of, of news. And, and then it just sure. kind of, you know, I, I think obviously, obviously the evidence was so overwhelming. And, and I've, I've talked to, I've actually talked to people in, in throughout my, my principalship and, and work in education. I've gotten to know people from across the state and, Every once in a while that this will come up and say, Hey, we heard, you know, blah, blah, blah. Can you tell us? And, and, uh, I've, I've met people that lived in the same neighborhood as him, uh, that have, uh, you know, they said, 
yeah, I mean, the house, the house no longer even exists anymore. It's been completely demolished. And, and I don't know if they've turned it into a parking lot or not, but it is, it is nowhere to be, be found. But um, it, it uh, was certainly a, an interesting time in history. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, the, the thing about your story that really resonates with me is that I can't help but wonder, like, how many times in our lives are we this close to the presence of evil and we never know it? I mean, it probably is all of us. Like, but for the fact that he got caught four months after he worked with you, you would never have known, like never have known, even if probably two years later, it would have happened. The connection to you probably would have been lost, you know? And so it just makes you think about how many times we have been in the presence of evil um, and didn't know it. And I'm just kind of curious, did this experience, do you think change you, like how you parented, how you lived your life? Have you ever wondered I mean, you were the prime demographic of so many of his victims. I mean, have you ever wondered, like, what if, what if he would have asked me, you know, to go out back and have a conversation with him about being hired for the next summer? I mean, do you let your mind go there or can you not do that? I I don't because at that point in time and since I know that wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to be going to Chicago to work for anybody. We, We were from two different worlds to begin with. Uh, he was from Chicago. I'm from Roseville. Um, and I really liked my world. <laughs> so I, I had no desire to that. go to, I, I know, you know, had no desire to go to uh, a larger city. Maybe subconsciously, you know, Stacia, now that you say that, maybe subconsciously over the years, I, I tend to watch my surroundings, be aware of my surroundings. If you're filling up with gas, if you're uh, you know, in a, in a store or in an area that you're not familiar with. Um, uh, my wife and I enjoy going to Chicago and spending, you know, a weekend up there doing some shopping or seeing the sites or whatever. But uh, as you're walking the streets, you're always kind of aware of who's around, who's, who looks suspicious, who doesn't look suspicious, uh, whether you're in Chicago or whether you're in Monmouth or Galesburg, you know, uh, so I, I don't know. As far as raising my children, um, I guess the same thing. We we just, I always kind of stress, especially after uh, both girls got their driver's license, they became of age and got, got their driver's license. Like, you know, just please be aware, uh, be a defensive driver uh, and and just just be aware of your surroundings. Uh, but other than that, I, I did not, I, I did not dwell on, on this little, experience in, in, in life on, you know, as far as. That's good. I'm glad he doesn't have, he he ruined a lot of lives. So I'm glad he didn't take anything from yours. Um, If anything, you probably added a little uh, because of your lived experience of being able to, you know, maybe just be more aware. And I know for me with my situation, when I was a kid, um, it didn't cripple or ruin my life, but it always made me aware that, you know, you can't trust everybody, you know, and that's unfortunate, but it's the truth and it's wise way to live, you know, just to have your eyes and ears open in the interest of time. I won't do this. I could literally make you retell that story six times. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by it. Um, uh, it, I will tell you, it made the hair on my arm stand up a couple of times, uh, especially when you talked about him 
talking about burying his problems and also seeking revenge on you by slamming your fingers. That's a very compelling part of your story. Is there anything else um, that you want to share with our listeners or do you think we, we covered it all? Yeah. I, you know, the only thing I would, I would share kind of goes along with what we, we talked about and, and, you know, being aware of your surroundings, but yeah, at the same time, there's a lot of great people in this world. Absolutely. And, and if you, if you want to live your life scared, you're going to miss out on so much. I, I, I've been to a lot of uh, professional development meetings and I'm sure you have too. And, you know, these little get togethers and they always start off with, you know, these warm, fuzzy introductory, introductory type uh, things that you're supposed to do. And, and one of them that I always, you know, it's like tell two, two lies and a truth and, <laughs> um, or tell two truths and a lie, I guess. Yeah. And uh, so I, I would say, you know, I, I've uh, shook hands with a serial killer and I've shook hands with uh, Walter Payton. Uh, and then I would I would make something up that sounded like a truth, but absolutely wasn't. You know, it, it, it's just I've used it more as, a, you know, hey, this. Yeah, I we we cross paths. But you know what? So did Walter Payton and I. And I'd much rather tell that story than yeah. than uh, maybe we'll have me. you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I thank you for sharing your story with us. I, I love that you're willing to tell it. Um, everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has something interesting. Um, and I'm here for all of it. I, I love to listen to people's um, stories. Before we close today, um, I really want to take a moment to not reflect on John Wayne Gacy, but just to remember the 33 victims. Um, of John Wayne Gacy. And as a culture, we're quick to remember the murders. And I just want to take a moment to think about the 33 victims of John Wayne Gacy and also to share um, a positive. So although this is many years ago and John Wayne Gacy has been dead for decades now, um, one kind of positive, um, even today, in fact, as recently as October 2021, sheriffs are working on trying to identify the unnamed victims of Gacy using now modern developments in DNA testing and forensic genealogy. And interestingly, every victim named or unnamed, they do have a DNA profile um, now. And so as more people participate in 23andMe and Ancestry.com, that is all one more piece to the puzzle to trying to figure out um, and give these people that are missing um, back their names. In fact, the most recent person that they've identified was a man that family did not even know that they were dead. Um, he had left home to go to the West Coast in the 70s, um, you know, kind of a runaway, except for he was like in his 20s, but, you know, deuces later days, I'm going to go live my life and never realized that he was even dead. And then just recently found out that not only was he passed away, but that he was one of the victims of that violent crime. So um, it's amazing with modern technology, how we continue to work and solve old cases and more importantly, honor and respect and give a name to the people that lost their lives. Don, I'm glad that this was the beginning of your story um, and not a story that ended in tragedy. I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Um, And for our listeners out there, if you have any brushes with fame or infamy um, questions or comments about today's show or any of our shows, you can send us an email at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. And as always, I appreciate you tuning in and listening today. And uh, we'll be back next time with Prairie Tales. Thanks, everybody. And that, friends, is where this tale ends. 
Prairie Tales is a production of the Buchanan Center for the Arts in Monmouth, Illinois. If you enjoyed our podcast, look for more content on Instagram at Buchanan Center and on Facebook at BCA Monmouth. Email us with questions and suggestions for future episodes at prairietalespodcast at gmail.com. Remember, not all history is found in a book. Sometimes it's found in the stories we tell. Just listen to the sound of the prairie, and you too might hear a tale.